get started because I'm sure a lot of us are getting hungry. Okay, so the question we're trying to answer here is this. What is the Bible? What is the Bible? Now, I know a lot of you are thinking, okay, we're past that. We already know what the Bible is. I just want to know how to study it, how to read it. How do I get stuff out of it? And yes, that's very important, and that is our goal. But before we get there, we really have to establish what the Bible is. Two weeks ago, we talked about like, what, is it, what does it mean for the Bible to be inspired writing, right? And we talked about how, yeah, inspired writing apparently is like historical events, poetry, quotes from his mom, right? There's, we talk, looked at one of those. Um, people who were uh, told by Jesus to write certain things down. There's people who um, wrote letters and eventually became scripture, right? So we realized it's actually very, very broad. And because it covers so many different genres of, of literature, we really can't use the word inerrant because like, think about it. If you were to write, like if you were to read poetry, how would you classify poetry as inerrant? What does that mean, right? Or like if somebody wrote you a letter and say, oh man, this letter is so wonderful. This is so inerrant. Like it doesn't make sense. I understand what people mean by it, but you know, it doesn't make sense. So I, we want to make the Bible weird again for you guys. Like you're reading it for the first time. And the definition that we came up with is this, or I came up with, and I made you guys agree with me, is this, the Bible is a library of ancient literature representing a partnership of humanity and divinity, right? It is when humanity, they're the ones who wrote it down, and divinity come together that we have this thing called the Bible. Now, the part I wanna focus on today is this word right here, partnership. What does it mean when we say that the Bible is a partnership between humanity and divinity? And so I wanna start off today by saying a quote that I think some of us, if not all of us, have heard before, okay, when it comes to the Bible, which is this. The Bible says it, and that settles it. How many of you guys have heard this before? Yeah, right, I mean, that's like, another way of saying this is like the Bible says it, so you do it. Is that really the best way to use the Bible? Is this what the Bible was given to us for? So I'm gonna start off with a pretty controversial statement. Maybe if you've been here for a while, it's not as controversial. But if uh, you're here new, you're new, and you're like, uh, who's this pastor guy that wears jeans and, and, you know, it might be a little controversial. Okay, so here we go. The Bible does not endorse everything it describes. The Bible does not endorse everything it describes. God, you're supposed to do this because the Bible says so. Mm -mm. And the reason for this is because of this word that I'm going to teach you today. It's the word accommodation. In the biblical circles, we call this accommodation. Scholars use the word accommodation to mean this one thing, which is this, okay? It means that God meets us where we are. God meets us wherever you are. So I'll give you an example of this, and there's actually three different types of accommodation I'm going to go over today. And remember, this is more like a classroom setting today. It's more of a, a lecture than it is a, a sermon. So if you want to take notes, you can. <coughs> Excuse me. So here, here are the three kinds. There's accommodations in the Bible for worldview, purpose, and command. Worldview, purpose, and command. So let me start off with worldview, okay? God, when, he, when it comes to scriptures, he accommodates our worldview in the way he tells the stories. So let's look at Genesis chapter 1. This is a perfect example. If you've been with us before, you've probably heard me talk about this, and I will talk about this again next year, maybe if we talk about Genesis next year. So here we go. So this is the creation narrative. Okay, God is creating the world. And in this creation, 
God's creating, like I said, let there be light, and there's light. Uh, let there be a separation between the waters, right? This is verse six. God said, let there be a vault. A vault? What, what's a vault doing in this story, right? Let there be a vault between the waters to separate water from water. So you're, God's separating water from water, and there's a vault? Now, if you use one of the older translations, like the King James, they used the word firmament. Maybe you're familiar with that word. God created a firmament. He said, let there be a firmament that separates the waters from the waters. What is a firmament? <clears throat> well, basically they believe that there is this wall, an invisible wall above us. Okay, this is the ancient Near East. So thousands of years ago, people back then would look up at the sky and say, hey, the sky is blue. Hey, the water is blue. You know what I think? Every once in a while, that water comes down from the sky, so there must be water up there. But what's holding the water up there? There must be some invisible wall. We'll call that the vault or the firmament. So God <clears throat> made the vault, the firmament, and separated the water under the vault from the water above it. And it was so. Wait a minute, Kotz. I'm, we believe the Bible is the word of God, but that, from my understanding, there's no water up there on top of a, some kind of a invisible, like are we in a snow globe? Is that what you're saying? This is what the people back then believed, okay? So let's take a look at this. Okay, so right here is the earth. So I would stand right there, okay? They looked up and they realized that there is this firmament, there is this wall right here, and water was above it. That's what they believed back then. And every once in a while, there'll be leaks from this, this wall, and then the water will come down and they'll say, hey, there's a leak in the firmament. Sometimes when it's pouring, they would say, God has opened the window of the firmament and the water will start pouring down. They believe that God lived in this chamber up here in the heavens, and every once in a while, they'll see water welling up from the ground, so they believe that there was a lot of water under the earth also. Okay, and they both show, show, that's where when you bury people in the ground and years later you see their bones but they don't see your bodies anymore. They're like, oh, so their bodies must have ended up here in the ground called Sheol. Now we know today, because we're smarter, okay, not like, not that much more, I guess, but we are smarter, we have evidence to say that there is no firmament up there, right? But that's what the people back there believed. If you understand this worldview, this cosmology, then you will also understand verses like Genesis chapter seven. This is a Noah's flood story. <clears throat> On that day, all the springs of the great deep, when we're talking about the water underneath, bursted forth and the floodgates of the heavens were opened. The firmament had an opening and it all came out. And rain fell on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. The next chapter is, says this, <clears throat> chapter eight. Now the springs of the deep and the floodgates of the heavens had been closed and the rain had stopped falling from the sky. See, these verses start to make sense once you understand the worldview they had back then, right? And if you want, here's some extra verses for you. Job chapter 38 talks about how there's a storehouse in the heavens where they have the snow. Like God has like some kind of a, a vault up there and he, he opens the vault, it's like let the snow come down, right? <clears throat> Excuse me. This is how the ancient world in the Near East, that's what, they, that's what they believe about the world, right? So when, God, when it came for God to speak to these people to write down Genesis chapter one, he wasn't like, guys, you got this so wrong. The earth is actually not flat. <laughs> it's actually round. And as a matter of fact, we have planets and we go around the sun, not the other way around. You know, like he could have said that, but he didn't. 
you know, what did, he do? what did he do instead? He accommodated himself to the worldview at that time and spoke truth through that worldview. He's not interested in correcting every single thing that we get wrong. Like, if you're wondering, like, why didn't God just say that there's nine planets in, in the solar system? Like, guys, I think there's eight planets now, right? <laughs> we don't know, right? Like, God's not interested in changing our worldview in terms of our cosmology. He's interested in having a relationship with us. And so through the worldview we have at the time, he will speak to us. That's an example of the worldview accommodation. Now let's talk about purpose. In Genesis chapter three, sin enters the world, right? Things go wrong, things fall apart, right? And then all of a sudden he has like a curse, you know, like, oh, you know, Adam hears her curse, Eve hears her curse, snake hears her curse, right? In the midst of that story, we find this interesting detail. The Lord God made garments of skin, from animals, I'm assuming, for Adam and his wife and clothed them. So if God is clothing these people with skin, animal skin, what had to happen to that animal? That animal had to die. Question, did God create that animal for the sole purpose of clothing people? No. We know from Genesis chapter one and two that God created animals so they could multiply and fill the earth right? But because there was sin, because there was fall, there was because there was compromise in, in paradise, God had to call an audible and he had to take something that was not meant for clothing. He had to take animals, skin them, and then give it to Adam and Eve. He had to make an accommodation in the purpose of that animal, right? So every time we see in the scriptures about an animal being sacrificed, is that the purpose that God had for that animal when the animal was created? No but he had to make those accommodations so that, well, to cover for the sins of humanity, our fault, you know, right? So that's another example of accommodation. Third example of accommodation down here is command. And this is the one that I wanna spend a little more time on because when we say things like the Bible says it and that settles it, when we start thinking about things, when we say things like this, I think that's the thing we think about the most, right? We, we could say the Bible says this about the earth, that the earth is flat, Therefore, that settles it. Like, that doesn't fly anymore, right? But the command part, it still flies today. Like, the Bible says that we should do it, right? So I want to give you an example of accommodation when it comes to commands. So let's talk about this topic, polygamy. In Genesis chapter 2, we see one individual and another individual come together, and God looks at the two together and says, you have become one flesh. You are now together, you are, you are now a unit, right? Well, in chapter four, so two chapters after that, this weird thing happens. There's a guy named Lamech who married two women, one named Adah and the other, Zelah. Apparently, he has a thing for girls with the last name, Ah, Ah. It's like, what's your last name, Ah? <laughs> oh, come on with me, no. Okay, now, you would be forgiven if you believe that the Bible endorses polygamy because from this point on in the story, we see a lot of people with multiple spouses. As a matter of fact, some heroes in the Old Testament have multiple wives. Abraham has more than one wife. We have, you know, all these characters are like, I guess the Bible allows for more than one spouse. So I'm saying like, yeah, you'd be forgiven if you believe that. Now, um, but the thing that really throws a lot of people off is in the book of Exodus when God starts giving laws. Okay, laws on how to live. Look at this, Exodus chapter 21. 
if he marries another woman, he's talking about just any general human being, if he marries any wo- another woman, he must not deprive the first one of her food, clothing, and material uh, and marital rights. So it sounds like they're endorsing it, right? They're like, hey, hey, if you want another wife, just make sure this first one's taken care of. Let's keep reading what it says. <clears throat> if he does not provide her with these three things, she is to go free without any payment of money. So wait a minute, does the Bible endorse polygamy? This is, this is what I'm talking about when it comes to accommodation, okay? Because in the Bible, you have to make a distinction between these two categories. There's something called the ideal and there's something called the real. Ideal is basically, this is what humanity was supposed to look like. But the reality of it is when we don't look like that. So we have to have commands that accommodate for that unideal situation we're in right now. So I'll give you an example, okay? Or actually the example I just gave you right now from Exodus 21, right? He's basically saying the ideal is in Genesis chapter two when there's one person, one person together, boom, that's what marriage looks like, okay? But when we go to Exodus 21, at that point, God is saying, well, if you have to have multiple wives, if you have to, like this is the culture you're in, there's no way around it, if that's the case, Make sure you don't neglect the first wife. Make sure you treat her as a human being. Make sure you give her the rights that she deserves because we don't want her to be, to be neglected. And if she seems to be neglected, you are to set her free so she could go and live her life the way that God called her to live her life. Accommodation, okay? I'll give you one more example, and this is the big example because it's mentioned both in the Old and New Testament, okay? And that topic is this, divorce. Divorce is a very touchy subject because if you think about the ideal, you would think that when God says, I'm gonna bring two people together, that they'll be together forever. But the reality, the real, is that that's not always the case, right? Um, in our denomination, we believe that there are reasons for divorce, right? That there's a, like, if, if one of them is abandoned, we think that's good cause for, for, for divorce. If there's an affair, adultery, I th- we think that that's, a good, that's good grounds for, for divorce, right? So there's, or abuse. We think that's also like, we're not gonna be legalistic about it, right? But in the Bible, sometimes people forget which one is real and which one's ideal. So here's a command in the book of Deuteronomy about divorce. <clears throat> if a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him, what does that mean, displeasing? Like, you woke up and you, you burnt my toast, you know, so that's displeasing to me, right? Is that what that is, right? Well, we'll we'll have that discussion in a second, okay? Uh, If a man marries a woman who becomes displeasing to him because he finds something indecent about her, so vague, right? Let's go on. And he writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends her from his house. Okay, so now he's divorced her, next verse. And if after she leaves his house, she becomes the wife of another man, so she remarries, okay, and her second husband dislikes her and writes her a certificate of divorce, gives it to her and sends her from his house, or if he dies, either way, then her first husband, who divorced her, is not allowed to marry her again after she had been defiled. Well, okay. That would be detestable in the eyes of the Lord. Okay. So... This command is there basically because people are assuming that it's okay to get divorced, right? Well, 
Thousands of years later after this, Jesus is asked a question about this verse. Let's take a look, Matthew, book of Matthew. Some Pharisees came to him, that's Jesus, and tested him. They asked, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for any and every reason? They're asking the question of what, is, what do you mean by detestable or displeasing, right? And at the time that Jesus was walking this earth, there are two groups of people. One group of person says, you could actually divorce your wife for any reason at all. If her hair is not well, you know, like it's like nappy, then it's like divorce, that's displeasing to my eyes, you know? Whereas the other group says, no, no, when the Bible talks about displeasing, they're talking about something specific. They're talking about somebody who had an affair or something like that, right? So they have this whole debate going on. They're like, let's have Jesus settle it for us. Let's test him. So Jesus, Jesus, he goes to this. He says, have you read, haven't you read the Bible? He asked, that at the beginning, what is he pointing to? Is he pointing to the law? No, he's pointing to the ideal, which is in Genesis in the beginning. The creator made them male and female, next verse, and said, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. She's like, didn't you read the book of Genesis? The ideal, the ideal is that two people come together and that they will be together forever, right? Like Genesis, right? Okay, so let's keep reading. And he says, so they are no longer two, but they are one unit, one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. I mean, I've done several weddings. You would say this line, like, I'm not gonna, don't let anybody separate the union that God has brought together. Now, the Pharisees who love the laws of the Old Testament, this is how they respond to Jesus' answer. Why then, they asked, did Moses, talking about the book of Deuteronomy here, command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away. Like, wait a minute, Jesus, I know you're talking about Genesis here, but my question to you is, if it's so wrong, why did God give us commands on how to deal with divorce? I mean, obviously, divorce is allowed in the Bible, right? See, they're pointing to the law, okay? Then Jesus replied, now this is the key right here, Moses permitted, he's not commanding people to get divorced, he's allowing it to happen, you, to divorce your wives because your hearts were hard. Meaning, when you live in a culture where you have to divorce or your divorce is a normal part of society, it's part of the economy. He's like, given that current situation, he said, here's an accommodation for you. When you divorce somebody, make sure you give her a certificate of divorce. At least that way, when women back then were treated as property, at least they will have a standing in society. That command wasn't given to you because that was the ideal, no, right? Next slide. It's like there's an ideal and there's a real, right? And the ideal, he's like, is Genesis chapter two, right here, that you're always together. What God brings together, no let anybody separate. But here's the thing. The real situation that we're in is that that divorce happens. So in a world where that happens, God gave you a command saying, here's an accommodation for that. Okay, so when we say things like this, the Bible says it, so we do it, right? We wanna to respond to that by saying this, not everything in the Bible points to an ideal. Why? Because the Bible does not endorse everything it describes. This is how we deal with kids, don't we? We don't give them the ideal, and we do give them the ideal at times, but every once in a while, some things happen, right? And we have to make accommodations for them because that's what love requires. Accommodation basically means 
God loves you so much that he's willing to meet you where you are. Okay, so the question that would probably pop up after this is this, right? Well, okay, if the Bible's filled with ideals and real, right? How do we, when we read the Bible, how do we know what part is ideal and what part is real? Like what, what is accommodated and what is the ideal? Like which, what are we, how do we tell the difference? And this is the cool part of the story because once we get into the New Testament, we find out this, that the ideal is Jesus. You look to Jesus and then you find out exactly what the ideal was meant to be. You can even say that one of the biggest problems in the old, like in the, the, the religious rulers in the first century is that they kept on getting those two confused. And so they're like, Jesus, the loss is this, so we're going to do it this way. And then Jesus is like, but that's not the ideal. That was an accommodation. And now that you're wiser, you should be looking to something closer to the ideal than, than the real. Okay? So, quick recap. Accommodation, there's three types. Worldview, purpose, command. God meets us where we are. So when we read the Bible, let's keep that in mind. We're not just reading the Bible for basic instructions. We're reading the Bible to f- discover a story. And, f- yeah, and Bible study is required to understand which part of the Bible is real and ideal. But whenever you, you get lost, you can always look to Jesus. That's like the answer key and say, okay, Jesus says this is the real, this is the ideal. Let's follow that. Okay, with that being said, uh, wow, that was really quick. Um, we have a few minutes for Q&R, and somebody's like, is it Q&A, question and answer? No, I don't have all the answers. That's called question and response, because I could just respond. So any questions? Alan's going to run around with a the mic. There's a mic here. <clears throat> and raise your hand. And if you have any questions online, you guys can post it in the comment section, and then uh, we'll read that off, too. In my quest to know God, Ten years ago, in the city of Fresno, it was an interfaith conference. That was the the best uh, gift that I could have. I attended that conference all three days. Uh, One of the speakers was a professor of philosophy and also a rabbi. Rabbi is the bishop of Jews. He claimed that Genesis 1, 1 is not the story of creation. He said this is the story of alteration. Mm. Do you know what the difference is? Me? Anybody? Oh. I, okay, I, let I, me I do. Explain. But okay. <laughs> Uh, when, when you accept Genesis 1, 1 as creation, then you have problem with the concept of day. If God created sun on the fourth day, which is in the Bible, then how did the first and the second and third day have happened? Mm-hmm. In my belief or his, his belief, God created the sun first. On the fourth day, when he separated vapor from um, water, dark from light, then the sun appeared, not created, because it was already created. 
now I want you to guide me if this philosophy, this kind of uh, thinking is correct. Okay. Um, I don't know where to begin. <laughs> okay, so I'm gonna start talking and see if, if it all makes sense to you guys, okay, if, if that's okay. Um, and this is how I think. Okay, so um, Genesis chapter one is a creation story told from the perspective of God, and Genesis chapter two is a story told from the perspective of humanity. If this issue is that there's a big vapor or a mist in the way that we couldn't see the sun, right? That we mentioned in chapter two, not chapter one. So I would disagree with the premise of that. Um, I do agree that, um, that the creation story that we mentioned in chapter one is more of a, a story of, of recreation than it is a story of creation. Because in Genesis chapter one, one, God created the heavens and the earth, right? And then every day after that, you actually don't see God creating anything. He's actually just moving things around, right? Like we just read, the water was separated from water. He didn't create the ocean that day. He just separated the waters that he already created on, on previously, right? So um, there's a lot of that. Um, another thing to consider is that in the Hebrew, the first verse says that the, um, the second verse says that the, um, the, that the world that God created was void, it, it, was, it was without shape, right? The Hebrew word is tohu vavohu. It's supposed to rhyme, which means that it had no shape, no form, and it was empty. So if you look at the first three days of creation, God is filling, or, or um, he's giving form to something that had no form. And the second set of three days, days four through six, are the days where he's actually filling it with animals and people and stuff like that. So in the first day, God gives us light, right? He's giving form. And then the fourth day, he's giving that light um, something to fill, so that's the sun. So um, when I look at the patterns of Genesis, I don't know if I would agree that God created the sun, God actually created the sun first, but we just couldn't see it. Um, but I have heard that before. I have heard that interpretation before. So I'm sorry, I'm just rambling now, but uh, yeah, and we can have more of a discussion of that later if you want, um, but yeah, it's a good, it's a good it's, I, I love discussions about things like this. of my problem, but created more. <laughs> <laughs> yes, God creates the good world, I create more problems. <laughs> I'm sorry, I, I always use this time not for questions, but for, uh, anyway. Uh, I love this question and answer time because it's questions you're blowing, you're blowing a lot of us out of the water. It's like, you know, we believe the Bible is the word of God and what are you telling us, right? Early on uh, in, in my quest for, for my faith, I've learned that uh, doubt is a good thing. Is doubt lack of faith? Doubt, ants in the pants of faith. God is always with us. That's your message today, right? Um, I, I started out my faith as a, quote, scientist, uh, biology major uh, at UCLA. And in order for me not to commit intellectual suicide, I had to uh, belong to this Institute of Creation Research down in San Diego, which believed in a young Earth, 12,000 years or something like that, because they can't explain anyway. Creation, so anyway, um, 
So, so it leads to this uh, haiku that, that I'm beyond that now. Dinosaurs too old? Keep the main thing the main thing. Love sinners, hate your sin. Mm. The problem with Institute of Creation Research is that they draw a line the people that, that are drawing the line here saying if you don't believe the Bible is the word of God, is inerrant, then, then you're in sin. And we're drawing lines all over the place. And that's missing the main thing because our job is to erase those lines and to be, to welcome everybody, you know, and, 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 and see God in each other. And, and, and all this, all this stuff, although I think now it's, it's, it's irrelevant to me, but I'm glad that it's relevant to me because I, I understand that, that I came from a place that it was very relevant to me, and, and this message needs to be talked about, and we need to ask these questions, uh, and because God will answer them for us. Um. I'm not sure how I'm going to ask this question, but I was curious. I mean, I um, I understand what you were saying there, but then you also mentioned that um, what we believe is free Methodist for divorce, and I think a lot of this is like how you interpret, you know, the Bible. And so I was wondering if you're going to be talking about the different interpretations of the Bible and how they influence us. Yeah, in two weeks. We will be talking about um, the different lenses we use to interpret scripture. So yeah, we'll talk more about that then. Um, the bottom line is I, I don't want to tell you what the Bible says um, because that's my interpretation, right? Everybody here has the freedom to agree or disagree with me. And what I'm doing right now is I'm trying to give everybody tools so that you don't have to believe in everything I, I say. So if you're listening to me preach and you're like, I don't know if that verse, I would agree with the way that Kotz used that verse, we want you to have the tools to be able to do that, right? So um, just because we're part of a denomination, um, it doesn't mean that you can't disagree with them. So that's what this series is about, is I'm giving us critical tools to be able to um, assess for ourselves. And I don't want anybody here to disagree with something just because it makes them uncomfortable, right? So uh, um, there's a lot of scholars that's a part of each denomination, and the scholars as part of the Free Methodist denomination looked at the scriptures, and they came up with the, 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 the doctrinal statement that, yeah, we think that divorce is not a good thing, but we also want to be legalistic about it because we understand that there are women who are being abused at home by their husbands. And for that reason, we don't wanna be like, but, 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 but divorce is bad, you know, right? We wanna make sure that, like, no, God cares about each person, and we want, God wants every human being to flourish. And so, like, hey, we don't want you to just say, like, I don't like the way you make scrambled eggs, so I'm gonna leave you. So we don't, we don't wanna endorse divorce in that manner, but we also want to say, but if it's going to hurt you, right? If you feel like you're being neglected, or there's emotional abuse, then in that case, we think that you have every right to make that decision to step away from it. So, yeah, it's kind of hard because when you say you can do this, some people take full advantage of it and say, well, you know, there's somebody else I like right now, so I'm gonna leave this one, right? We don't want people to do that. So doctrinal statements in denominations or in general uh, is, is very dangerous, right? 
Um, and just want you to know that's where our denomination landed on this. And I agree with them on this, you know. Uh, so, yeah, but we will talk about how to interpret things, what lenses we use to interpret in about two weeks. So, great question. Maybe one or two more questions. It's dangerous when you give me a mic because I'm going to ask a question. That's so you why I gave you a mic, I, I'm Alan. sorry about that. You said at the beginning this, the phrase, the Bible says it, that settles it. Yes. One, what does that really mean in terms of practical application, at least what you observed? Oh, yeah, yeah. Second, where did that come from? Okay, so it came from us, not us like this congregation, but from America, basically. Um, when the biblical literacy went down, it actually came from more of a specific group of people called the evangelicals, which we're actually part of. Um, there was this move from understanding scripture by its own, understanding scripture by what the Bible claims itself to be versus we think we know better than what the Bible says about itself. Well, we're just gonna follow the Bible as it says that, like if it says something, we should follow it literally. And that's where this whole, the Bible says it, that settles it came from. Um, but here's the thing that, that really bothers a lot of people, especially people who are not Christian, people from the outside looking in. Um, when people say the Bible says it, that settles it, that's usually used in a form of an argument, right? Like, I don't think we should do this. I think we should. I don't think we should. Well, the Bible says it, let's, that settles it, right? But what we're really doing is we're picking and choosing, right? So, I mean, if the Bible says it and that settles it, well, what about that verse in the Bible where it says that um, Jesus says, why don't you sell all your stuff, give it to the poor, and come follow me? Anybody want to do that? The Bible says it, that settles it, right? <laughs> right? Or how about gouge out your eye or cut off that arm that's causing you to sin? The Bible says it, that settles it. Right? We, we pick and choose. Right? So when we say the Bible says it, that settles it, I think they're just trying to make a point that they want to make, and they're using the Bible to back themselves up, and they're using that as an authoritative text. Um, that's why it's dangerous, because it's used inconsistently, and it dismisses what the Bible says about itself. So I hope that answers your question. And I gave you the mic because I want you to ask questions. In case you guys don't know, this is the great Alan Oda. <clears throat> he is a professor of psychology at Zusa Pacific University. Give him high ratings if you're a student there. <laughs> and I think we're going to call it because okay. it's almost time. So thank you, Pastor Thank Kotz. you. Thank you. Okay, so uh, let's close this in prayer. And I hope to see you guys next week for part, this is part three, so part four of the series. Okay, let's pray.